Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Melania, Tiffany, Laura. Thank you very much. Well, we're very proud of our company. We've built one of the great real estate companies of the world, with the notable exception of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. This is the most coveted piece of real estate in Washington, D.C., the best location. That was then-presidential candidate Donald Trump in the closing days of the 2016 campaign, taking time off to announce the opening of the Trump International Hotel in Washington. The event didn't get all that much notice at the time, given everything else that was going on. But now that he's living in the White House, Trump's hotel, just a few blocks away, has become a legal albatross for the president, as evidence mounts that foreign governments, corporate lobbyists, and lots of others are spending big bucks there in an apparent effort to curry favor with his administration. And next week, the Kuwaiti government will throw its grand National Day celebration there, the third time it has done so, once again enriching the president's personal coffers. As Washington awaits the completion of Robert Mueller's Russia report and picks over the new book by acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe, we'll dig into what's going on at the Trump Hotel and why it represents one of the biggest legal and political threats of all to Trump's presidency. And we'll talk with a Virginia congressman who is demanding answers on why Jared Kushner still has his security clearance. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. My co-host, Danny Clydman, is off this week, uh, basking in the sun in southern Florida. So we have a guest co-host, uh, our Yahoo colleague, Hunter Walker. Hunter, welcome to Skullduggery as a host. Yeah, this is, this is I guess I'm a longtime fan, but not a first-time caller, but a first-time host. <laughs> right. First-time host. So look, actually, you just got back on vacation yourself from Mexico. How did you uh, manage to get from Mexico into the U.S.? And well, do you the, have any tips for all the thousands of people, uh, tens of thousands <laughs> of people who are trying to invade our country that way? They, they haven't built the wall yet. Okay. <laughs> so I guess I was still able to get through. Because uh, in the right. future, the wall will definitely stop planes. Right. That's what right. the president Of course, you will not be able to fly <laughs> over the wall. All right, look, this is uh, shaping up as a momentous time for the Trump presidency. Multiple reports now that um, Mueller's report could be coming any day, at least submitted to the attorney general. Um, I imagine there are quite a few people uh, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue who are on pins and needles at the moment. <laughs> well, you know, this is a White House that has just been repeatedly rocked by tell-all books. Right. And this is kind of going to be the ultimate tell-all, I guess. Folks are going to be doing that old DC read where they look yeah. through the Mueller index and see where their name is. But I think, you know, there's a lot of questions about what this document will be and what we will get to see. 
You know, Mueller has been filing these, what they call in the legal community, speaking indictments that are pretty darn detailed. So will the report be even more detailed or have the indictments been his primary communication vehicle? The other question, obviously, you know, this is going to his superiors at the Justice Department. What will get from them to Congress and then what will ultimately be made public? So, you know, we know that we're headed towards some type of conclusion, but I think we don't know whether whether we're going to see that much from it. Right. I'm like, look, all the regs require is that Mueller submit a confidential report to the AG, William Barr, and then it is really at Barr's discretion about what gets publicly said. Now, in his confirmation hearings, he made clear that he believes as much as possible should be publicly shared. Is that just the conclusions when you get into the details of the report and then you're dealing with, you know, grand jury material, with classified information, you know, with comments and testimony about third parties, private individuals who are not criminally charged by Mueller, how much latitude is Barr going to have to make that public? Clearly, Congress, the Democrats, are going to want to see everything. We'll see how much uh, gets publicly disclosed. But I think the pressure is going to be enormous on Barr to release, you know, something very soon. And, um, you know, I, I would think it could come within days, but we will find out. Speaking of tell-all books, though, I mean, we had this week the extraordinary media tour of Andrew McCabe, the acting FBI director who was fired by then Attorney General Sessions, uh, the guy who launched the counterintelligence investigation of the president to determine if he was a Russian asset after the firing of uh, Jim Comey. And um, the president has been tweeting away about McCabe, hasn't he? What I find really interesting is there are reports and we're seeing the tweets come out. Trump and his allies are both speaking out against aspects of the McCabe book that put him in an unflattering light, but also trying to take some elements of the McCabe book where, you know, he talks about efforts uh, underway inside the government to either investigate the president or even consider removing him from office. And they're using those pieces of the book to argue this quote unquote deep state conspiracy against Donald Trump is real. So it's really interesting to watch them sort of say the book is true when it when it serves their narrative and also right. say McCabe is this liar and fabulous. Right, right. And I got to say, I mean, having read the book. I was surprised because it's well done. And there are some priceless anecdotes in there, ones that haven't gotten big headlines. But among others, Robert Mueller appears in the book. I mean, McCabe used to brief Mueller and he talks about what a ball buster he was <laughs> to brief, how intimidating he was. And, you know, where's that material I asked you about the other day? Why don't you have the answers? You know, um, not, and, and Bob Mueller is like six foot seven or something. He's right? not. He's not. No, that was Comey was six foot seven. Mueller's a big guy, but not quite that like big. Six five or right, something. Right. But, but uh, you know, Marine lieutenant in Vietnam, all that. Here's one I didn't know. Mueller had gone to interview with Trump for the FBI job after Comey was firing. We knew that. What we didn't know is while he's in the Oval Office being interviewed by the president, he left his cell phone behind 
in the White House. And then there's a call made to Rod Rosenstein. He needs his cell phone back and Rod has to go intercede to get the cell phone back. But my favorite is the moment, and I think this tells us as much about the Trump White House as anything I've read. It's February 2017, and the uh, senior White House staff has learned that the FBI has this information about Michael Flynn. Now, he may have lied about his conversations so with the This must Russian have been like a week ambassador. or so after Trump yeah, took office. Right, right. It's, it's early February. And McCabe gets summoned to a meeting with uh, Reince Priebus, then the chief of staff, and Don McGahn, the uh, White House counsel. And Priebus is very quite upset. We need to see what you've got on Flynn. We need to see the evidence right now. And suddenly, there's a TV on in the room, and it starts airing a story about some event in the Trump White House. And they all turn around. Apparently, it's an unflattering story. And they get into a big argument about who leaked the story. And there's Priebus and McGahn going at it. You know, poor uh, McCabe is just sitting there patiently. He's been summoned to this super sensitive national security briefing and he's watching the uh, White House. I'll just read you a few lines. Everyone turned toward the screen and they all began to talk about the story which they said had been leaked. I don't remember what the story was, only how much it upset them. They had a heated conversation. I waited for that to finish. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, this is a White House that to me is evocative of a Mel Brooks movie, I think. It's I mean, the only thing I can uh, compare it to. There are so many ways. That's the ultimate anecdote of Donald Trump's Washington. Yeah. You know, you have this highly sensitive and important meeting get completely disrupted by cable news and leaks. Right. The meeting itself featured pretty much an entire cast of characters that's no longer there because right. of the turnover. Yeah. And we're finding out about it in a tell-all book written by a fired FBI person, <laughs> right. which is, this is not even the first time that's happened. And, yeah. and it is this really unique feature of Washington right now that these fired FBI guys are like the new best-selling rock stars. It's yeah. amazing. I, I know. Now, next week we also have have a guy who hasn't yet written a book, um, <laughs> but Michael Cohen is supposed to finally testify <laughs> before Congress in public before the House Oversight Committee. So they tell now, you know, the caveat here <laughs> is this has been scheduled three times before and canceled three times before. So, you know, there is a wait and see uh, aspect to this. He's the runaway bride of congressional testimony <laughs> right. at this point. Okay. All right. So <laughs> Cohen goes before House Oversight. Now, the uh, scope of this hearing is not supposed to include Russia, because the next day he'll be before Adam Schiff's intelligence committee behind closed doors testifying about Russia. Why behind closed doors at this point is beyond me, as we've discussed many times on this uh, on this show. But the public testimony is clearly designed to to have Cohen talk about how he was abused in his false loyalty to Donald Trump, but that should be quite the show, Cohen's testimony. You know, as the president has tried to distance himself from Michael Cohen, after Cohen effectively, you know, flipped to borrow the right. very appropriate in this Became case, a rat. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
since then, the president has tried to distance himself from Michael Cohen. And I have, I think on Skullduggery and elsewhere, just repeatedly tried to make the point that that doesn't hold up. I mean, Michael Cohen was as close as you can get to the president. Uh, in 2015, there was a point when the Trump campaign was really like five people and, you know, two of them were Michael Cohen and Roger Stone, mm -hmm. right? Cohen has this decade-long relationship with the president and his business. He was apparently the fixer in these really sensitive instances of alleged affairs. And he continued his relationship with Trump, although to a lesser extent, after the president took office. So, you know, he and his attorneys have claimed he's now finally telling the truth after covering for the president and he's, you know, ready to do his patriotic duty and, and you know, tell all. And given that expectation and given his close, close ties to Trump, I think, you know, this could be, if it actually happens, one of the most interesting hearings we've right, seen. Right. And needless to say, the Republicans will have plenty of ammunition to fire away at Cohen on. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, is an admitted liar. He's been convicted of lying to Congress. Right. He was raking it in shamelessly right after Trump's election, collecting big, giant consulting contracts from companies, from with business companies like AT&T yeah. and you know, foreign interests as well, all pretending that he would have inside access that could influence the administration. And, um, and I think you're, you're also going to see them get right. into his family ties and personal business. Right. I mean, this is a guy who built his relationship with Donald Trump by having his family members, many of whom are from the Ukraine, buy with cash properties in Trump buildings. So right. that's actually how they got introduced. And, you know, it's funny, you've seen the president make these allusions about Michael Cohen better watch out for his father-in-law, you know, which is an implied almost legal threat. But there are a lot of questions surrounding Michael Cohen's vast personal fortune. He's owned some very, very valuable properties in his own right. And also his family, which has, you know, extensive links to figures in the former Soviet Union and right. has had tax problems of their own. So I'm sure a lot of that stuff, whether it's appropriate or not for the president to threaten this guy <laughs> testifying against him yeah. about that is another question. But other Republicans will certainly feel free to bring up this morass surrounding Michael right. Cohen. Right. And we should point out that that's how Cohen got into trouble with the Southern District, even after he pled, they wanted to know everything about his knowledge of various criminal acts, including those by members of his family, and he was not forthcoming about that. So he did not want to tell the prosecutors in the Southern District about that, and that's one reason they threw the book at him, even though Mueller's people were satisfied with what they got from Cohen. Uh, the Southern District prosecutors were not. I do find it interesting that in Cummings' uh, memo, Cummings being the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, in his memo about what will be covered in this hearing, he did say that Cohen will be asked about the campaign finance violations, the payments to Stormy Daniels and the arrangement to pay Karen McDougal. That is something that is squarely within the Southern District's uh, jurisdiction, all indications that that's been an ongoing investigation. The fact that Cohen will be testifying of that suggests to me that maybe there aren't more prosecutions that the Southern District is going to give on this. Otherwise, why would they have given the green light for Cohen to testify? Yeah, but uh, you know, one of my favorite things to bring up as we talk about all this, everyone talks about Mueller, right? But there are so many legal fronts where right. the, the president is being investigated. There's 
Congress, as we're seeing coming up. There's the Southern District, which may or may not be wrapping up. Right. And then there's potential with the Attorney General in New York. Right. So, so the president is just getting it from all sides. Yeah, plenty of material uh, for skullduggery. And we've got uh, some interesting guests uh, to talk about that. But before we do, a little uh, presidential politics. We've had a new presidential candidate, somebody who's been around the block before, Bernie Sanders, who just jumped in this week. And um, I understand that you do a pretty mean Bernie Sanders, and he's got something to say about who appears as a guest on Skullduggery. The millionaires and the billionaires have avoided being guests on Skullduggery for far too long. For the rest of you, I'm asking for millions of volunteers to listen to our program. This is an unprecedented movement where we don't take any corporate money except from Verizon, which owns us. Right. You can give Randy Credico a run for his money. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, thank My you. My dog is better than his. <laughs> Let's get on with the show. We are now joined by Zach Everson, the publisher and editor of 1100 Pennsylvania Avenue and a guy who is tracking, perhaps more than anybody else, the comings and goings at the Trump Hotel. Zach, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So this is a absolutely fascinating subject uh, that only gets more interesting as the days and weeks go by. How did you get onto this in the first place? Why are you spending time following what's going on at the Trump Hotel? I had been a freelance travel writer for about 15 years, which is how I met Hunter. And I had an assignment for Condé Nast Traveler to go and write about the hotel in the traditional Condé Nast Traveler kind of stuff, but also dig into the legal issues the hotel was facing. This was right after Trump became president, right after the hotel opened. And so from the vantage point of my stay there, we kind of looked back at what lawsuits were going through the courts and what was happening that way. And the, um, you know, I saw the president there. That was like the big takeaway is that I saw the president. I talked to the president briefly because I was a customer at his hotel. Now, is this while he was president? Yes. Or yes. This is yeah. while he was president. This was in April of 2017. Uh-huh. I was there. And what was he that. doing there? Uh, he had a steak dinner. That's what he told me. <laughs> you know, I didn't throw any hardball questions. I just wanted to see if right. I could talk to him. And, you know, what would you have for dinner, Mr. President? Steak. Right. Um, so from that, I started looking at social media, seeing what was going on at the hotel. And... It was amazing what was happening there and that it wasn't really being reported on. I really took a look into it during the time that uh, Scaramucci was communications director, and he was there every night. And it, it just looked like a fun place to go. The, every, he was there, Kellyanne Conway, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and I just started tweeting this stuff. And it kind of took off, and I just stuck with it. Okay, but there are some really significant legal and political questions about Absolutely. what's going on at the hotel. So why don't you outline them sure. for us? Well, right now we have three emoluments cases that are going through the courts at various stages. Uh, one by crew was filed the first weekday after Trump was inaugurated. That got that uh, that was dismissed for lack of standing. They're appealing. We're waiting to hear on that. The biggest one we have going on right now is the D.C. and Maryland attorneys general. They were granted standing only regarding the D.C. property. There are none of Trump's other businesses they had originally filed regarding uh, New York and some other properties. And that they were granted standing. They started issuing some subpoenas. And that got kicked up to the appellate court, though, and the subpoenas are on hold. So oral arguments on that one are in March. Right. And, and just to be clear, the issue here is 
the plaintiffs, in this case, the D.C. and Maryland attorneys generals. And there's a third one by members of Congress. Right. And that they also were granted that the uh, president is violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution by maintaining an interest in his business while he's president. And that business is collecting revenues and profits from foreign governments corporate lobbyists and others who are trying to influence his administration. State governments as well. That's another mm-hmm. big one there. We just found out that the state of Maine dropped $22,000 of taxpayer money on uh, 40 nights at the Trump Hotel and some nice steak dinners as well. Right. Now, the, the big one, though, that is happening next week mm-hmm. is Kuwaiti National Day Celebration. They're back. They're back. For the third, third time. For the third time, the Kuwaitis are having their grand uh, reception in Washington mm-hmm. at the Trump Hotel. And they made big headlines the first time. And that's part of what kept me wanting to stick with this, is that I figured the headlines would start disappearing when these things kept going on and on, and it was just a matter of habit. But I felt like it's not the first time that this happens that it's really as important as the second, third, and fourth. Right. So the first time the Kuwaitis did this, they had actually sent out Save the Dates to have the event at the Four Seasons. And then Trump gets elected, and they have a change of venue. And it becomes <laughs> the Trump Hotel. And that first one has been cited in those emoluments cases. Like, it is right. mentioned there. And they're going back for a third year. I mean, I guess if it's, if it's already in litigation, why It's, it's why kind of your in habit? your face, isn't Exactly. It? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, so I, I just want to step back and set the scene here a little bit as, mm-hmm. as one of the many people in D.C. who now in this administration is finding myself spending a lot of time in this hotel. Giving uh, our president your business. Uh, giving uh, Yes, I, I use business, my expense account. Right? Exactly. Yes. My corporate card is a frequent flyer over there. I've and, argued it needs a, uh, there needs to be a Trump Hotel D.C. press pool. And, and there's a lot of us who are reporters who go there. And the reason is this is the old post office building on Pennsylvania Avenue. So, you know, the lobby effectively is this cavernous space with this huge ceiling. It's got a bar. It's got the steakhouse on one side. There's a Brioni, Trump's favorite mm-hmm. tailor. And every night that bar and sort of the seats around it are a rogues gallery, almost the Star Wars cantina of, <laughs> of Trump administration officials and wannabes. I mean, I've seen the president there. I've seen Don Jr. there on numerous occasions. Corey Lewandowski is a frequent hanger on. And then sort of more outsider types who either are close to the administration or want to be seen to be. So, you know, this would include controversial alt-right blogger Chuck Johnson. I've bumped into him at least twice there, the staff of the Daily Caller. Uh, so I think you know, a lot of the issue is that are people spending money there either to give money to the president or because of the access that seems to be the access to officials and others that seems to be coming uh, since he's taken office. And you have just I mean, I've been following this since you were doing it on Twitter. I'm so glad it's become a newsletter. You have been ahead on so many of the people who are in there on a given night. And I, I wanted to ask you, how do you use social media? What techniques are you doing to figure out who's there? And it's taken me a long time to hone this down. You know, the results are out there. It's trying to narrow narrow out all of the uh, false positives there. But it's looking to see who geotags that facility, and not just the hotel, but the alternatives for it. If they geotag the old post office, going through that, checking tags. There's certain people I just know who are there all the time, and they may not geotag, so I just check them out. Going through Facebook, which can be a difficult one to to look through. Facebook was one of the biggest finds I had. Was I saw the day after it happened that T-Mobile CEO John Laguerre was there. And that was he was there the day after he announced the merger with Sprint, which was going to need government approval. And, and who was there he was. with him? 
talking to he him? He was talking to some two random people, the best I could tell. One of them prayed with him. That was according to the caption. And prayed they just, for approval from the Justice they Department didn't get for into the that. merger? Uh, or? The picture is no longer on the internet. Okay. You know, a lot of these pictures, I got to take yeah. screenshots of everything I see because a lot of these pictures do have a tendency to disappear later. Yeah. But he was there immediately. And, you know, he wears that noticeable T-Mobile logo. He's got the mullet. You can tell who he is. And he was there all the time that first couple of weeks. And as he was pursuing a merger. As he was pursuing a merger that needed government approval. And then, you know, the, the Washington Post just recently got this great scoop with the documents that they were on the VIP list so many days, how much money they spent there. You know, they were able to back that up. But you can find this stuff a lot of the times on social media first. And I think that's another important point to make is how much money folks are spending because this is not a cheap hotel. Yep. And I often joke whenever I'm about to hand in a hefty receipt uh, to my overlords from the Trump Hotel that, you know, this is the most overpriced bar in D.C. I mean, it is... It, What's the cost for a beer? A, a house wine, I believe, is is near $20. Can I, it, the $15 Tempranillo, yeah. great license to linger. It's a good <laughs> solid wine. Anything cheaper than that, I don't know if I'd go with it, but I, at 15 bucks. Is there anything drink. cheaper than that, though? I think... I, you might be able to get something yeah, for 14 I think or 13 dollars $15 yeah. is about the minimum cost yeah. of a beverage at this hotel. Now, yeah. When the hotel opened, it was losing money. The room rate was below the break-even point, it was reported. And yet after he won, the Washington Post somehow happened to see documents that were just briefly posted erroneously to the GSA website that the hotel made $2 million in the first two months when it expected to lose $2 million that whole first year. I mean, that is a heck of a turnaround. Well, let's remember, even before the Kuwaitis, the Saudis stepped in yep. right after the election, and they start this lobbying campaign to change the law just passed by Congress, JASTRA, that would allow uh, the families of the victims of 9-11 to sue the mm -hmm. Saudis in federal court in the United States. The Saudis didn't like that. They were trying to get the law overturned. They start flying in veterans from all around the country country, putting them up at the Trump Hotel, and then deploying them to go lobby members of Congress to change the law. That happened immediately after the election is when those trips from the veterans started. $270,000. $270,000 of Saudi money yep. going directly to the Trump Hotel. Yep. All right, so tell us What's wrong with this? <laughs> why is nothing? Why right? should Not we care that the Saudis and the Kuwaitis and other foreign governments are trying to patronize the president's uh, hotel? Without getting too much into the archaic language of emoluments, it's yeah. the whole point is to show that the president works for the American people, and there should be no question about that. Now we don't know if the president is finding out who stays at his hotel every day or not. Maybe he's getting lists of it. You know, there's been the Daily Beast reported that one of the hotel's front office workers said that he had briefed the president on, on the banquet business. The hotel denied that, but we don't know. You want to know if the president is working for the United States people. And if you've got Saudi Arabia dropping $270,000 there, you don't. And certainly people are going to that hotel thinking they will influence the president. There is a picture of the sugar beet farmers. They were in town. They were at a different hotel for some event, but they went over to the Trump Hotel, and the caption on the picture said, having a drink to support the president who supports us. I mean, they, they said the quiet pretty Pretty much <laughs> says it yeah. right there, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the reason the other D.C. hotels weren't getting their business that night. And, and I also think that, you know, there's a gulf between how Trump's other businesses have done. In Chicago, in New York, yes. we've seen Trump hotels have to 
pull his name off the wall, have to cut their rates um, because people were actually uh, less inclined to show yes. up after he took office. Uh, one thing that I find interesting, I've actually gone to Sushi Nakazawa a couple times because it's pretty freaking yeah. phenomenal. And this is inside the same building they lease from Trump, but it's a separate room and it's around the back of the hotel. And actually it's way easier to get reservations there than Sushi Nakazawa in New York. And it's also um, not crowded most of the nights I've been. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see the spaces where you know the president's not showing up because he, he only goes to the steakhouse. The yeah. spaces that are not attached to this lobby filled with Trump officials are totally empty. Exactly. People are not otherwise apparently drawn to the space. All right. So it's not just foreign governments like the Kuwaitis and the Saudis and not just corporate interests such as T-Mobile, but it's also political interests. Right, who are patronizing the hotel. You mentioned one that you just learned about in the last few days. Yeah, the vice president, we just found out today that his PAC spent $36,000 in the last two months at the Trump Hotel, bringing the total up to over $160,000 that he spent there. So Vice President Pence's Pence's PAC. Great America Committee. $166,000 at the Trump Hotel. Yeah, $160,000 plus. And his brother's campaign spent another 30000 there, Greg Pence, who's now a congressman from Indiana. So you've got the Pence brothers combined pushing $200,000 at the Trump Hotel. Right. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, another big spender there. And in fact, there was a report from one of his events at the Trump Hotel that Trump spoke to that Trump gave a nod indicating to people he would support McCarthy's candidacy for speaker. If and it were to come the to RNC's that. had a lot of fundraisers. Oh, the there RNC as well. is, yes, the RNC goes <laughs> to the Trump Hotel a lot. They actually go to some of the yeah. other ones as well. They do go to Doral. A bit, but the RNC is there regularly. And let's not forget what we learned about the Trump inaugural committee, which yes. spent a ton of money right. there. One point right? five million. The hotel right. wanted three point six. The Wall Street Journal reported today, mm-hmm. but the one point five million figure has been reported by a lot of people. Um, I think WNYC and ProPublica had it that they were paying one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars a day for event space. And they even got a prayer breakfast kicked out of the event space so they could use it themselves. Okay, so we have these lawsuits that allege this is all a violation of the Constitution, the Emoluments Clause. The Justice Department is representing the president on this, not in his personal capacity, but as president of the United States. What's the argument of the defendants here about why this is not a violation. There's several. The main one is just how you define emoluments. I mean, there's there's no case law on this. So they're going to the dictionaries. And that was one of the things that I think Judge Massey singled out in Maryland. Judge Massetti. Massetti, rather. Right, sorry. Yeah. That the plaintiffs had more and better definitions of emoluments than the DOJ attorneys did. And the, the plaintiffs there had gotten a law professor from Georgetown to go through these dictionaries that were contemporary with the drafting of the Constitution and define emoluments and see how, what that word would have meant for the founders. So that's one of the big arguments that— the, and, and the Justice Department argument is what? It's not an emolument. This isn't because, what they meant. Because it's a hotel. It wasn't written in like that. So they're saying only if you, like, slip cash to somebody yeah. and put it in their pocket, that's an emolument? There's that argument. There's also the fact that the president has distanced himself and that, you know, it isn't a trust. Of course, the trust is still—it's his, and he can take money from it at any time. But they can, they're saying that there's also that trust there. And additionally— Wait, 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 but it's, he's, he's not distanced. He still— but that's what maintains his ownership interest 
in the Trump right, right. organization, his, his 70, which owns the hotel. Right, his 70% ownership of the right. hotel is put in that trust. Yeah, I'm not the one making the argument. Yeah, I'm just no, telling I'm, you what I'm, DOJ this, is. This is, as the president and his attorneys would say, quote unquote, totally legal and cool. You know, yes. and, and I was there at the Trump Tower press that conference. the phraseology they used in their court filings? That's the one he used on Twitter. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but I was there at the press conference where Sherry Dillon, this lawyer, you know, came out and talked about how he had just gone so far above and beyond in distancing himself from his company. He had that big stack of papers. Yes, and I tried to look at that stack of papers, <laughs> and they would not show it to me. Can't imagine why. Uh, I, it's almost as though it was a giant blank stack of papers made to look quite impressive, but I, I wouldn't want to speculate on that. Uh, but what we do know is that the president has not removed himself from his company. He's not divested from his company. Right. He claims he you know, is no longer involved in day-to-day -day operation. But let's be very clear, the people who are are his family. Right. His sons are running that company. So, you know, when you are patronizing this hotel, you are directly handing cash to the president and his family. I think that's that's right. totally fair to say. Okay. I, I would agree with that. I've always believed this is a not just a legal but a political threat to the president in the sense that if we ever get to the point of impeachment, and you know, we'll know a lot more perhaps in the next few days when if Mueller really does submit his report and how far that's going to go. But any impeachment uh, uh, bill of particulars will include almost certainly an article that says the president is in violation of the U.S. constitutional, you know, prohibition on emoluments, and that this will be part of the case against the president. Now, uh, you pointed out something to me, uh, Zach, just before we came on, which is that next week we have Michael Cohen's yes. testimonies. Finally, Supposedly. we'll see. <laughs> it's been, you know, scheduled and put off three times before the House Oversight Committee. But in his memo about the scope of that testimony, he mentions, Cummings does, chairman of oversight, the um, emoluments clause, the Trump, the Trump Hotel, Hotel, as when, one subject. Yep, when they listed the scope of what they were going to talk about. And several of the other items on there pertain to the president's business, but they specifically singled out the Trump Hotel there. You know, they didn't single out mar a And why or, did they do that? We're going to find out. I'm really curious. I don't know of any direct connections that Cohen has other than having worked for the Trump organization. Right. He's been there a few times. There's a great picture he posted online of him having cookies and coffee with Diamond and Silk. Um, <laughs> Who are also having a concert at the hotel, They are having right? an event. They're bringing their chit chat tour to the Trump Hotel uh, also I believe next week next and they're they're doing wow. a tour I think they're about 15 or 16 dates and four or five of them are at Trump properties so we got the Kuwaitis Diamond and Silk uh, yep Roger all... Stone was just there recently oh really well yep. tell us about uh, that. it was for Virginia Women for Trump was having an event there their campaign kickoff they're they're a private LLC they're not affiliated with the campaign the indicted Russiagate defendant Roger Stone yes he had the just been one. indicted right? he had just he had just yep it was the day after he was up here for his arraignment I believe and it mm -hmm. was two days after that which if you remember the judge had said no book tour I mean, she specifically used the phrase, right. no book tour, and he was at the Trump Hotel signing books and hawking his T-shirts for his legal defense fund. <laughs> and, and wait, this is, this is a point that I always have to stress. What do those T-shirts say, Zach? Oh, God, I can't remember. Roger Stone did nothing wrong, which is a pretty blatant allusion to a popular neo-Nazi meme, Hitler did nothing wrong. Oh, so you have one. this. Wow. <laughs> it's a little over the top. Didn't know, know that one. I was on. just like I said, I saw pictures of yeah. him signing books, and I'm like, she <laughs> yeah. said no book tours. And if yeah. you're, you know, talking to an audience and signing books, but so th then we've tour. got a guy who's been indicted, could potentially be hoping for a pardon mm -hmm. from his 
former close associate, the president, and he's handing money to the president. Headlining an event that looks like it sold out. They had about 300 people there. Well, all I can say is what better place to celebrate your arraignment than the Trump <laughs> International Hotel. It seems like uh, a, a, a magnet for uh, indicted defendants. We've seen um, a lot of people celebrating there. Uh, yeah. Acting Attorney General at the time, Whitaker, went there after right. his testimony. Don Jr. was obviously staying there around the time he was being uh, talking to the special counsel. Right. So you see a lot of that sort All of right. So broadly, what categories of people do you see there? I think you nailed it. I mean, you do definitely see people who are members of the administration you see a lot of hangers on. I mean, I sometimes when I'm deciding if I'm going to share a picture I found of somebody go, does this person matter? Or do I just think this person matters because they are always at the Trump hotel? (laughs) You know, a lot of people whose value depends on the perception of proximity to the president. You'd see Katrina Pearson's there a lot. Eric Bowling is there a lot. He actually did his TV shows after state of the union live show from the Trump hotels lobby with special guest, Sean Spicer. (laughs) So, You know, you see a lot of those yeah. people. You see a fair amount of lobbyists who are coming and going. There's some people who work for the uh, the nonprofits that benefit, that work with the Trump campaign. You'll see them sit there. You know, the big setting I had recently, I was sitting in the lobby. I got to see this one in person. A large contingent that looked like they were from Africa coming came in. Mm-hmm. There was all sorts of video cameras on them. I said, all right, I'm going to see who this guy is. I took a look on social media a half hour later. He was the main opposition candidate in Nigeria's presidential election, which was 30 days after that. It's not like the election was nine months down the road and he's checking out the Trump Hotel now. And as I did some digging, it was a campaign issue whether or not he was allowed into the U.S. Because he he had been banned for a while because of corruption involving – Representative William Jefferson? Yeah, so going yeah, yeah, way yeah, back yeah, on right. that one. So, that was the guy with the money in the fridge, right? Yes, so exactly. So let's just get this straight. This is a guy who the State Department had banned from had banned. coming to the United States because of allegations of corruption. Yes. And there he was at the Trump Hotel. It had been, right. Yeah. It had been an issue in the campaign whether or not he right. was allowed in. So, right. you know, Trump didn't want to mute him. So what did he do? He did the next yeah. best thing. ton of video cameras on him as they were doing it. He actually even held a town meeting for Nigerian expats in the Trump Hotel. Right. And to take their grievances. Right. And then as I was looking at that, there was a second Nigerian presidential candidate there at the same time. <laughs> a long shot. There's what 72 better people running. better place to campaign for president of Nigeria than the, uh, uh, than the Trump Hotel? Well, look, it sounds like it's going to be a wild week next week. Maybe Mueller's report, Michael Cohen's testimony, and uh, Trump Hotel will be doing business like gangbusters. It'll still be there. All right. Yep. And you can, we can all read about it on... It's 1100 Pennsylvania yep, Avenue. Probably the easiest way is to go to Twitter and just type in 1100 Penn, mm-hmm. and that'll take you right there. All right, Zach Everson, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We are joined now by Congressman Don Beyer from Virginia. Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really, um, really looking forward to this. Uh, a lot we want to talk to you about, <laughs> in particular, your efforts to get Jared Kushner's security clearance revoked, uh, in which you've been at the forefront of. But before we get there, uh, you just got back from Central America, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Obviously, the country's from which the caravans have been coming and, you know, that which the president is citing as the basis for the national emergency. Tell us what you learned down there. There's so much. We, we were there on the ground for five days, and it's hard to compress it all. But, but the basic purpose for going was to try to figure out what are the root causes of this, what they call irregular migration, and understand what the people there on the ground are doing about it. We had a chance to meet with all three presidents 
and the president-elect in El Salvador, this young man, Bukele. And within there are varying uh, things. But we came really away with three very strong impressions, opinions, conclusions. Number one is to the extent that the corruption is rampant, it's a huge disincentive for people to stay. For example, the last two presidents of El Salvador, one from the left, one from the right, both serving prison sentences right now. Um, that you know, hundreds of millions of dollars disappearing into Panama. And Honduras, too, right? It, Hon- the Honduras, uh, the yeah. brother of the president was just indicted, I believe. Yeah, I think uh, and the, the uh, brother and the son of the current president of Guatemala. Of Guatemala. <laughs> yeah, I asked okay. him about it. He's trying to get rid of the independent UN commission, so-called CSIG, that is trying to provide uh, – he's banned them and took, wouldn't let the, their, their leader, from, who's from, I guess, uh, Brazil, back into the country. And I had a chance to ask him directly whether – how is he going to fight corruption if the corruption-fighting unit was banned from the country? <laughs> uh, there's a, an internal corruption unit in Honduras called Maxi, and then they're doing a pretty good job at El Salvador just with the existing – so we actually met with two or three of the attorney generals prosecuting this too. In all the, these countries, the attorney general is not part of the executive branch. It's separate from the president, uh, which is a good thing, at least in those countries. The second big thing was violence. Um, you had murder rates in El Salvador recently of 100 per 100,000 people. By comparison, it's five in the United States, wow. so 20 times larger. They've cut it down to about 50. Guatemala has it down to 20, which is still four times as large as ours is. And then the third big thing is poverty, that Guatemala, particularly 60% living in poverty, 57% chronically malnourished. They showed us pictures of Guatemalan children in Guatemala and Guatemalan children in the United States, and there's a six-inch height difference. And But the really interesting thing was that they said, give them any reason to hope that it's going to be better, and they won't, they won't make the track north. None of them really want to leave. They leave because they see no future there, or they're afraid they're going to be killed. And so the better we can make conditions there, the much less migration we're going to have. And in fact, the investment that we've had, largely started led by Joe Biden when he was vice president, um, has already led to significant declines. If you look at the numbers of people coming north, it's much less than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Although the administration, as you know, points to the huge increase in the number of families coming with children, and that that is what they are saying is the crisis. Uh, and it is more families. I think it's. I think it was up to like 22, 24% in the different countries, right. as opposed to 5 and 6%. Historically, it had been young men coming from, you know, the poorer provinces outlying, who then would send back lots of money. What was fascinating is that 20% of El Salvador's GDP is remittances from the United States. Um, so it's, it's, in fact, in all three countries, remittances from the United number, States yeah. are larger than their tax revenues from all sources. Uh, so in a weird way, it... Uh, they really help their family when they can somehow make it across the border and find work. All right. There. So did this change your thinking at all about yeah, the immigration issue? Oh, very much so. What, what it, I think it clearly told me, and we had five other members of the Congress led by Senator Tom Carper um, with us and my wife and his wife, um, was the, the more we invest in education, in public safety, and in reducing corruption, the less people we're going to have to turn away at the border, the fewer people we're going to have to catch um, either ports of entry or in the backland. And one of the fascinating statistics is it's a minimum of $27,000 U.S. taxpayer money to repatriate somebody that we caught at the border or that we caught in the interior of the United States and send back. Um, and that $27,000 goes an incredibly long way in these very poor countries where the average wage is $300 a month. 
um, in terms of giving them a reason to stay. So we're, we're, we're putting the money in the right, wrong place. Right. And, and we're, and we're doing it. It's the old, you know, I'm a, I'm in the businessman. I'm a car dealer, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I'm, I I like to brag. I think I'm the only fully certified auto mechanic in Congress, right? And the, when <laughs> I, I didn't know you have that particular <laughs> yeah. expertise, well, which I'll remember the next time I'm yeah. stuck on the highway someplace. Yeah, it's dated because I haven't worked on them in 20 years. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I probably couldn't do it today. But one of the typical things in mechanic is if you have time to do it right the second time, you should probably do it right the first time. You know that it. Quality is doing it right early. So what we're doing is we're spending money at the end of the process rather than at the beginning. And I think, you know, given the trip you just went on and that you represent Virginia, which, you know, it's gotten a lot better, but they were sort of the first state to really face a big MS-13 problem. And, you know, implicit, I think, in the president's rhetoric and also as we saw with Ed Gillespie in the ads in Virginia, is that MS-13 is part of this threat at the border. What, what was your sense of that? Oh, well, I learned so much. Hunter, one of the most interesting things is I did not realize that before the year 2000, there were no gangs in El Salvador. That MS-13 and 18th Street, two gangs called 18th Street, the Southerners and the Revolutionaries, were all created in Los Angeles. And when we started deporting them because they were bad guys from the United States, they went back and got footholds in El Salvador. This was an American export to Central America. And now there's something like 350 clicas, which are the small bands, sort of independent cells of these gangs. And we have our FBI and DEA and Homeland Security down there, one by one, taking them apart. Sort of reminded me, actually, of what they were doing um, or trying to do in Iraq and Afghanistan is dismantle, disrupt these little cliques, these little cells of gangs, and take back neighborhoods one by one. But, you know, look, the idea that we can restore or repair a failed state, which is what these countries are, hasn't worked so well in Afghanistan and, uh, you know, uh, it hasn't worked elsewhere. The idea that we'd be able to do it in Central America in such a way as to make a material difference in the number of those people who want to come here seems like, uh, you know, uh, asking a lot. It is asking a lot, but I'm optimistic. And I think one of the differences is the cultures are much closer. I mean, you, they, first of all, they hero worship the United States. I mean, the our, you know, we were listening to our music and our books, and they all have families here, which is not the same with Iraq or Afghanistan. Those are very, very different cultures. The, the religions are largely the same, the philosophies. Uh, right. So I'm, in fact, was it... In El Salvador, 80% of their exports are to the United States and 80% of their imports are from the United States. Right. So, that's it, you know, you, you walk down some of the streets there, it just seems like right. um, poor neighbors in Virginia 30 years ago. All right. Jared Kushner, yeah. the president's <laughs> son-in-law, you have been at the forefront of demanding that his security clearance be revoked because of the multiple mistakes he's made on his SF-86, the form he had to fill out when he joined government. Tell me how and why you got onto this, and have you gotten any response from the multiple letters you've been writing? Well, uh, I first got onto it because back when Barack Obama was about to be elected, um, I'd raised my hand and said, boy, I'd love to be on the transition team. And they said, okay, fill out this F SF-86 form. we got to vet you first. It took me two and a half days to talk about where my grandparents were born, every place country I'd ever traveled to, every foreigner that I knew. And yeah, I live in greater Washington, D.C. I know a lot of people that are foreign born. Uh, and it was incredibly comprehensive. And then I found out that Jared Kushner failed to list 
at least 100, if not more, um, foreigners that he had talked to, that he had business dealings with, that he'd met with as part of the campaign. He just forgot about them. Just forgot them, <laughs> just left it blank. And yeah. then his wife left them all blank, too. And then that he'd had to make, uh, last I heard, it was more than 40 corrections to his financial data. It, I just thought, this is just not right at all. So with Ted Lieu, a congressman from California, we wrote, I think, five letters in 2017 yeah. saying, this is wrong, and who's overseeing this? And it turns out, I think, we were c- completely correct when you come back to the fact that the internal White House people had said he shouldn't get it either. And one of my favorite points that you've made, because I think we first talked about this in July 2017 when you were on maybe your second letter, and you had 20 members of Congress join with you to talk about Ivanka's security clearance, because this was right when we were first discovering all these over 100 updates Jared had made. And you made the point that, you know, based on your familiarity with the document, the SF-86 doesn't just ask about your contacts. It asks about your spouse's contacts. So in the case of Ivanka, if Jared had to update his 100 times, then she did as well. And I don't think we've really gotten any information from the White House on that. You know, the amazing part is, so I I get to serve Foreign Service as a political appointee for four years. So many friends in the Foreign Service and in the military, and everyone I talked about it said, oh my God, if that had been me, I'd have been fired. My security clearance would have been revoked. I could be in prison. And instead, he's meeting with the president a couple times a day. Right, right. And we know that, you know, certainly Ivanka made trips to Russia. She was in Moscow in 2014. That would have been within the time period that I believe you had to answer questions. So let's review what happened here. He corrected on a couple of occasions this form to include all the foreign contacts, including meetings he had during the transition. And the White House people... Reviewing the security clearance, at first recommend he not be granted a top secret clearance, and then they get overruled. Who overruled them and why? So there's this guy named Klein, K-L-I-N-E, who had been a Pentagon official. And he apparently overruled and said that Jared could have this top secret clearance, this, I guess, TC clearance. And then it turns out that he'd done this 30 other times, and we don't know who the other 30 people were, uh, whose security clearance was recommended to be turned down by the internal professionals who do this in the White House through different presidents and different administrations. And turns out, they said, in the years before Klein came up to this position, only once in the previous three years had their recommendation been overruled. And now it's overruled 30, 31 times. Has Klein been questioned at all? Yeah, apparently he has, and I've not heard any responsiveness. In fact, it, it almost gets worse. Well, he's, he's out of the White House now. They sent him back to the Pentagon. I don't know if that was a direct result of this. But in the meantime, the young woman who was the whistleblower, who had been in the White House for something like 19 years doing this job, um, he suspended her for 14 days, apparently for whistleblowing. Klein did. Klein did, yeah. Suspended uh, the whistleblower. Aren't there her? whistleblower yeah, yeah. protection laws yeah, that there, there should prevent be. that? I'm sure she's pursuing it. But And he did. The, she she has some rare form of dwarfism. She's four foot nine. I guess the first thing he did was put all the files too high for her to reach them. Yeah, and he, he apparently um, said to her, uh, she wrote this letter to her family members where she described how he said to her, well, if you want the files, you can ask me or find someone else to get them. 
So he was, according to her, he was literally preventing her from doing her job. Prince of a guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just, yeah. Just, just incredible. So we're you approaching. Know, and, and, and then go one more step because, you know, there are d- different levels of security clearance. So Jared wanted the, the segmented compartments, SCI, which is the top level, the number five. Because that way he could be in the president's briefing. Because a lot of the stuff you see is level five SCI. And that has to be done by the CIA. They looked at it and said, no way. Uh, so he still doesn't have that, thank goodness. Um, so, but, he, but Trump does have the prerogative to basically yeah, overrule anything yeah, on yeah. this, right? We introduced legislation just on this to say the president should not be making the decision on his internal staff on security clearances. It should be made by the FBI director. It has not passed yet. <laughs> so, so is there a next step on this? Can you call Klein to testify before Congress and grill him about what happened? Was he pressured to make this decision? Yeah, yeah um, I hope so. I'm not the chairman of any committees, but I think uh, oversight and government reform, which is Elijah Cummings, would be mm-hmm. perfect for uh, Representative Cummings to bring Klein in to do that. Yeah, and we will, if we haven't already, we probably will ask the chairman to do that. Right. I was going to say, we're approaching in April. I think it'll be the two-year anniversary of you pushing on this. And since then, we've seen the Democrats take back the House, and we're seeing um, Cummings use the Oversight Committee to begin a security clearance investigation. Are they looping you into all that, given that you were out in front on this? I'm I'm not on the committee. They usually are gracious enough to let me attend the hearings, Mm -hmm. sit off on the side. (laughs) Um, But... Yeah, we, we talk all the time. Jerry Conley is one of the leaders on that, and he's a dear friend, and, and we're close. Now, you are on Ways and Means, which is one of the <laughs> committees that can go through the process to get the president's tax returns. Where do we stand on that? Are we going to see his tax returns? A qualified yes. First, let me, let me quickly review the law, the, the, at least the way I understand it, is there are two entities in Congress that, that can, under this ancient law, request the tax return of any uh, American citizen. One is the Joint Taxation Committee, which is Democrats and Republicans from, from finance and tax on both sides. Um, that's not likely to happen because of the Senate controlled by Republicans. Right. Or the, the House Ways and Means Committee, where we have a 25 to 12 advantage. So our chairman, Richie Neal, Springfield, Massachusetts, um, is going about this in a deliberate, thoughtful way. As he says, this is a really big, important, historic thing. He doesn't want to not do it right. He wants to make sure that he's crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. And, and so they've begun the process. By the way, as I understand it, at least as he's explained it to us, the, the first step with his request is that the Internal Revenue Service will share it with him um, as the chairman uh, confidentially. He will then review it and decide what can be shared with the full committee and then ultimately what can be shared with the American people. They're also anticipating that the White House is going to fight back right away. That right. once that request goes to the, there will be requests for injunctions and, uh, to, and to, to, to go back to Newt Gingrich, he, as a Newt described mm-hmm. it some months ago, saying, "Now we, now we get to quote, now we get to see whether." The, that investment capital is worth it. (laughs) All right. So what's the legal argument here? What's the legal argument on on your side in getting the tax returns? And what's the, how's the White House going to push back? What's going to be their legal basis? I probably can't give you an adequate answer, but that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that Chairman Neal has said is that we can't just say, hey, show us the tax return. We, the Ways and Means Committee, have to have a bona fide good legal rationale for asking to see the president's tax And what's return. the legal rationale? Well, I'm not writing the brief, but I would say, as, as Don Byer speaking, mm-hmm. that there are so many suggestions that the president's behavior for with Russia, among others, has 
must be inextricably linked to his financial fortune. Why else would he give Putin a pass on damn near everything from Crimea to believing his intelligence rather than our own intelligence agencies? His willingness to criticize everybody in the world mm -hmm. except Putin um, it strongly suggests that when no U.S. bank wanted to lend to the Trump organization anymore, that these were Russian funds coming out of Cyprus and places like that. So I think when you, see, when you get Andy McCabe saying that there was reasonable concern that he could be a Russian agent, the best way to establish that is to see those tax returns. Well, and he's also, he has not been transparent about his business dealings in Russia. I mean, after, you know, we started doing some of the reporting on the Trump Moscow Tower, um, it really now has become abundantly clear that when he got up and said, I have no business interests in Russia, that was not correct. He, well, he was pursuing a business interest in Russia <laughs> at that very time. Yeah, I guess we could have a semantic uh, argument right. about but, it But there. we also know, just look at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the, the mm. times that this man has lied yeah. is absolutely historic. And, and this is also a commitment that he made all through the campaign, be the first president in a long, long time not to share his tax returns, that uh, you know, this isn't an average citizen. This is the president of the United States, theoretically the most powerful person in the world. American people have a right to know. Do you think we would before 2020, before the elections? Again, I'm not a lawyer, but personally, no. I think we need to do the best we can to get them. But it's been suggested more than once that it could be tied up in courts for two years. Okay. You are a member of Congress from Virginia, and there's been a bit of uh, controversy, shall we say, yeah. to say the least, about what's been going on in your state at the highest levels. You were among those who called for your governor, Governor Northam and your lieutenant governor to resign Northam because of the uh, blackface photo on his yearbook and uh, Fairfax because of the allegations of sexual assault. They have not followed your recommendation and that of many others. Uh, so where do we stand on that? Is Northam going to survive? Do you still think he should resign? And what about Fairfax? I still think both should resign. But they, they are not listening to me, and they may both survive. They, may, they will survive in very wounded uh, positions. It's very difficult to see how any of them can run again. And the strong leadership that we need in Virginia, um, is really, that was my, from, from the beginning, my perspective and that of many, many of the people that I, I've talked to, was how do you effectively lead a commonwealth of 8.5 million people of more than 100,000 state employees when you are so wounded. Given by, that, by that they've dug in, how damaging is this going to be for the Democrats in Virginia? Uh, well, the, you know, we have, a, we have a minority in both chambers, 21-19 Senate, 51-49 right. in the House. So we were very eager and excited about the opportunity to take both of those back. Now it's just going to be a lot harder. We can still do it, but um, the whole notion of having the governor, the lieutenant governor, hosting fundraisers all around the Commonwealth for our best candidates... Right. That's well, that, that, that's in the races this year for the state legislature. What about presidential uh, in 2020? Wow, that's I haven't thought so much about that. That does make it harder. You know, we've we've won 10 or 11 straight statewide elections. You started purple, mm -hmm. even almost blue. Um, depends on who our nominee is. But once again, it's hard to imagine our nominee is wanting to campaign with either of them. And again, I don't wish either of them ill at all. Um, the, the sexual assault things are much more concerning um, because it's these are right. actual crimes. 
um, the, the blackface is, was stupid and, and suggests that we have a long way to outgrow our, our deeply racist past. Um, last question. You are a businessman at car dealership. That's how most people know your name. Yeah, yeah. And we have a lot of progressive presidential candidates right now in your party who, in some cases, call themselves socialists or calling for some really progressive ideas that are not necessarily in sync with where the business community is. Are you concerned that your party is drifting too far left and this is going to hurt the party in 2020? No, I'm not. We've always been a big tent party. I think some of these progressive ideas sound a lot scarier than they really are. And that when they're tempered down by the reality of actually governing, they can be really, really important. Fascinating thing I read this morning is in, in the year 2000, the top one-tenth of 1% 1 had 7% of the assets in America. Today, they have 20%. It's tripled in, in the last generation. We are in, struggling to maintain a democracy where there's ever greater inequality of wealth and inequality of income. And as the greatest Thomas Piketty's work, the return on capital is so much greater than the return on labor. So it's really difficult to work your way. Um, without a lot of luck into you know the upper middle class or even the middle class. So we have to find thoughtful ways of doing it. And I actually inadvertently quoted in some newspaper last week about um, does having $21 million rather than $20 million and $500,000 make you live a day longer or iota happier? No. You know, so th there's, a, there's a great op-ed I just read, New York Times yesterday, won the philosophy essay that talks about the good enough life. Um, we, we need to find a way to make, as Mark Warner, our, my pal, the senator says, we need to rethink what 21st century capitalism really is. And I think it's going to have a greater concern with the wealth of every American. So you start, they say Medicare for all. I, I'd almost rather get it down to say, let's find a way to make sure that we understand healthcare is a basic right, and every American deserves universal health care. Congressman Beyer, we're out of time, but when you get the president's tax returns, would you please come back and share it with us on Skullduggery? <laughs> with the permission of my chairman, yes, I will. <laughs> okay. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks, Congressman. Before we sign off, I understand we have a quick update from the courthouse where Judge Jackson was holding a hearing on Roger Stone and his provocative Instagram posting showing a picture of the judge with a crosshairs next to it. Yeah, and the judge basically gave Roger Stone a gag order. He is no longer allowed to publicly speak about his case. He had argued this was necessary for his livelihood, and she's going to potentially shut him up if he obeys the order. Which I guess means he cannot be a guest on Skullduggery. So <laughs> a loss for a political dialogue there. Thanks to Congressman Don Beyer and Zach Everson for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at SkullduggeryPod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.